to our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watch Stargate and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing. Better to do so. Listen, here's our show. Hello, and welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I'm Malika, your host for this episode, The Gatekeeper, season two, episode four. And today I'm joined with my friends and super fans, Rose and Samantha. Before starting this episode, I just wanted to read you the description from Netflix. It says, the team discovers a dome full of chambers, each containing an unconscious person. As the team investigates, they're trapped and knocked unconscious. That's not what happens. No, it's not. It's so much more in this episode. But when I read that, I was like, not again. <laughs> that describes like half the episodes that we have watched. And I really, I was like, every episode I come in full of hope and excitement for what wonderful new storyline we're going to hear and see and experience. And then I read that description and I was like, oh no, what have these girls gotten me into this time? I just don't, I don't think they go into chamber. I guess they are thinking the pods are chambers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but it, that, this episode is not that. I agree with Heroes. So we open on a dome on the computer screen in the control room, and we can hear the gate starting up in the background. They're looking at the computer screen, and Tilk says that he doesn't think it's Gaould, but Daniel does say that it does look advanced. What did it look like to you guys? <laughs> the greenhouse in Vancouver. It did. It did. I wanted it to be like, oh, they got like Epcot or what is that one that's in the Arizona desert? Oh, like the biodome? The biodome. I was all excited. And then it was really just a little tiny. <laughs> it's like the Botanic Gardens of Vancouver. <laughs> so they trans they they go through the gates and they're on this new planet there's a ton of flowers everywhere it's a wonderful garden o'neill says where there is a garden there are snakes so we know that there's going to be a bad guy and daniel of course sneezes i don't know if you were able to see this rose but um as we both watched this on netflix but there was a torrent of spit just a cloud. I was like, you know, Daniel is very method. <laughs> was this a real sneeze? It was a real like spit everywhere sneeze. And then, yeah, I saw the cloud of spit as well in it from his mouth. It was impressive. Yes, it was. A door opens onto the dome or botanical garden conservatory. And there's a mini forest and chambers and there's people in them all wrapped up in tubes, but they seem to be alive. Why are they touching shit? Haven't we learned this lesson already? They're curious. <laughs> Don't touch random alien shit. Wait, the last time this happened, Daniel got transported to a alternate universe. Let's, let's review times that you touch shit and bad stuff happens. 
right? There's nano nanobots. I guess that involved having sex with someone, but still like there's a lot of hazards in alien planets. Just look and don't touch to start. Let's try that. Yeah, I, w- I would think if you walked into a room and everybody's unconscious in little chambers and you see that there's four open chambers <laughs> and there's four of you, don't go near them. But yeah. Yeah. The chambers do wrap them up in these um, tentacle-like metal things and it's very matrixy. Yeah, it kind of reminded me a bit of uh, Alien too, the, the architecture of that alien ship in alien or like um what are those like pods that you in space movies where they put you in like suspended oh, like stasis stasis yeah. pods like on star trek yeah that's what i was thinking and this is actually the first time that we see who we later find out are the residents why are they wearing black veils maybe that's the style wasn't their world blown up or wasn't there a nuclear disaster or something on their world so maybe it was some kind of protective gear yeah they've been in there a thousand years right yeah so and the gamekeeper is a real person at first i was unsure if he was a real person or an an ai kind of inside the game um but he's he must have been sort of caretaking them right because he was tending the garden this whole time so he can't be a thousand years old because if you're not strapped into that machine how could you live that long maybe he's sometimes strapped in maybe are they not human uh i thought daniel when he was looking at them he did say that they were human yeah (laughs) lifting up the veil just he said they're human and alive so the next scene is tilk and o'neill they're wearing traditional military uniforms with regular guns and it looks like the countryside i thought it was europe it looked like europe as soon as it opened like in world war ii or something that's what it reminded me of it was East Germany, right? That's what he said. Yeah, it was East Germany, but it looked like France. All of Europe kind of looks the same. That's good. Okay. <laughs> I think you thought it might have been France because of the like they weren't berets, but they were very close to berets. The jaunty looking caps. Yeah. <laughs> guys. Of the Russian guys? No, they were German. They were Russian? No, they were Russian, Russian agents. Well, I guess it's East Germany in what 82, he said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was one years old. So they, so it makes sense that Russians would be hiding in East Germany. The fact that they, like three of them were wearing black leather jackets, even though they were supposed to be soldiers. Okay. It was 1982. <laughs> so Tilk and O'Neill seem to be very confused by the location because they still have their memories of being on the other planet and being sucked into those chambers. A truck arrives and out comes Everybody's favorite. (laughs) And some guy named John. Who's John? Is this our first time that we meet John? Yeah. Okay. And they know O'Neill. And of course, O'Neill knows them and knows that both of them should be dead. And that's when we find out from O'Neill that John actually died during this mission in 1982. And O'Neill goes a little hysterical. And so John punches him in the face to calm him down. Okay. Is, is that what happened? Is that like a standard operating procedure? When I don't, I don't know that you'd get away with that these days. I mean, the military is, is sort of a black box, I feel like, but I don't think you can just punch people <laughs> that work for you. I feel like there'd be complaints that might get filed. 
all O'Neill has to show John um, that this wasn't the mission that they actually had in 1982 was that Tilk wasn't there with them. And he rips off Tilk's beanie. <laughs> and Tilk has a full head of hair. Very impressive. Head of hair. That's a wig, right? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. I laughed so hard. I had to not only pause it, but I had to rewind it because I, I just couldn't stop. It was um like a Jafar guffaw for me because I just <laughs> tilt in a white man's wig freaked me out. That's curly. But it was like it was he was like a brunette. Yeah. <laughs> I it led me down a rabbit hole of looking at I must have looked at maybe 75 pictures of Chris Chris Judge and his hair in all different styles and it never looked like this. <laughs> It, it was awesome did you see the blonde goatee phase no i didn't you might see that at some point so john calls tilk thomas which i guess is tilk's human name tilk thomas kind of but so o'neill postulates that this was like a time travel thing and that they really were back in 1982 in east germany but that wouldn't make sense that Teal'c is there as Thomas and that they know him, right? John's like, oh, Thomas has been with this unit longer than you have. That's not time traveling. That's changing the past. Yeah. So that would have seemed to shoot down that theory. And you would think that if it was a time, time machine kind of scenario, that O'Neill and especially Teal'c would be like, we can't make any changes then because that would alter our, the future completely. So Tilk looks into the window and says, it's very perplexing why he's there. I think he meant why he's there. I took it as he was looking at the wig. So at this point, I decided that I'm going to give this episode eight chevrons. Because of the wig? Because of the wig. That was the funniest thing I've seen in (laughs) years. So... We'll talk about your ratings later, but I'm just putting on the record, I'll give it eight chevrons. <laughs> so the mission starts and O'Neill tells John that there's a sniper on the roof. There doesn't seem to be a lot of conversation about if you now kill the sniper, then John doesn't die. So that the time machine idea kind of goes by the wayside without much discussion. I mean, I get that they're trying to figure out what's going on, right? This is the first time they've been trapped in an, is it the first time they've been trapped in a simulation? So maybe that doesn't occur to them as a possibility. So time travel seems like a reasonable place to start, but there's too many things that would indicate it's not. And I would think that Sam has probably drilled into them. Like if, if we time travel, you can't change the past. Yeah. Yeah. But what about alternate reality? Maybe it was an alternate reality. It, but an alternate reality in which Tilk, Tilk was present back in 82? Anything can be an alternate reality. I guess. I don't think O'Neill is there yet. <laughs> I think Carter might have said, alternate reality, but O'Neill's still in this time travel. <laughs> yeah, it felt like, like later we'll see Daniel and Carter together and, and you can see 
Carter going through every scenario and O'Neill's more like, you guys should be dead. And then let's fix this. <laughs> Not a lot of thought. So the sniper is taken out and the team runs to the house as they move in with more protection than I've ever seen anybody wear <laughs> on SG-1. There's a ton of enemies and they're all ambushed and two of them, two of them, the members of the mission are shot and killed, which includes John. And O'Neill calls out, let's fall back. They run back and all of a sudden um, they look up and there's a truck coming and it's John and Kowalski again. What were you thinking about this? I was thinking Groundhog Day. It felt like a time loop. Like yeah. we were just put in a time loop. What was your yeah. I mean, I don't like this episode and we'll talk more about why I don't like this episode, but like it's the idea of an incessant loop of reliving one of the worst moments of your life is like panic inducing to me. And I hate this episode for, because it like goes there. But is this really the worst day of O'Neill's life? I mean, I would think it would be his son's death. No, it's not the worst day, but it's probably a pretty shitty day. Yeah. I mean, Daniel's is, I would say one of the worst days. Um, yeah. Like that's horrific to relive the death of your parents over and over again. But to relive the, a friend dying in your arms, like in, like incessantly, like every five minutes over and over again, that's awful. Mm -hmm. Like the level of trauma you're putting these people through, I don't think it was acknowledged by this episode. Mm -hmm. And also O'Neill might not have, even though he wanted to change the death of his son, he wasn't present when his son actually shot himself with the gun. So he could have, I mean, the various scenarios would be like not having the gun there. But this is the one where O'Neill actually saw the death of John. So maybe that's why they picked that because that's also Daniel sees the death of his parents. So maybe, yeah. He probably relived, oh, I should have looked on the roof. I should have done this. Would it have been not better, but just not as bad if they were actually allowed to save John or allowed to save the parents or allowed to save um, the son because it seems like whatever they did John still died the parents still died I mean the ultimate goal is to save them but the game the keeper wants to see every single scenario like that's that's what feeds the residents but they they all end up dead not all but the people who die end up dead at, after each scenario it just seems like if it, it, did, it didn't seem like a smart game. Like the groundskeeper really did not understand his subjects at all. I mean, maybe if they kept playing like in ad infinitum, they would have eventually figured out how to win. And but, I think, that, I yeah, I think the keeper, that was the intention from what he was saying. Like you have to go through every single scenario possible and then he'll let you win. And then we move on to the second most traumatic moment of your life and let's do that to that one in the next scene we see where carter and daniel end up and it appears that they're in a building and carter is wearing a very fetching top and <laughs> daniel is in some kind of hoodie <laughs> natural yeah. hoodie who dressed these people did the groundskeeper pick these outfits he must have yeah, how did they? So Carter's not actually her outfit is not from memory because this 
isn't her memory. So they just pick a random, it seems like a very specific kind of style. It's not like just a shirt and jeans. So, And they're matching a bit too. Like the same pattern is on the shirt as on his tunic or tunic or whatever you call that thing. It was strange. <laughs> and we hear um, police sirens. And that's when we find out that we are actually with Daniel and Carter in the New York Museum of Art. And it looks like- really the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Oh, is it? It looks exactly, and they have like, um, they have that kind of exhibit there too. Like an Egyptian. Mm -hmm. And then we hear from Daniel that the people who are standing under the (laughs) hugest slab of stone ominously dangling over their heads are his parents who he looks exactly like both of them not just the dad this was daniel getting his glasses his hair and his fashion sense from both of his parents <laughs> yeah i don't know why they had to stand under it but it seems like you shouldn't be doing that they literally could have t- taken four steps and they wouldn't have died and left their child an orphan yeah, why did it, if, if anyone, if somebody had to be under it to make sure it was set properly, it didn't have to be both of them. It, it was just very poor planning and yes. But it does fit in with my theory about Daniel. Where does he get this, this strong belief that he has to die and kill himself in every episode? Obviously from his parents. This is like some kind of genetic disorder. That makes you always want to die. This, this makes Daniel's being fucked up make a lot more sense, right? Because like, I mean, I know Daniel's not your favorite character, Malika, but like a running theme with Daniel is like everything he loves gets ripped from him, right? His parents, his wife. And it's like this, like, you can see why he's kind of suicidal, right? Like life has just not been kind to him. It's pretty awful. Did, did he have this backstory in the movie? I can't remember. I don't think so. Okay. But I don't remember, but I don't, I don't think so. So the inevitable happens, of course, the slab falls on his parents. And then quickly, we are back in Germany. So we, we don't see Daniel's reaction yet? No, I think, yeah, I think we do, don't okay. we? Okay, so, so, yeah. so we see Daniel's reaction. No, we do, I think we do. We see, we see some, but there's no, I think the second time we see it happen, we get more of a reaction. Okay. Um, and I, th- I think Michael Shanks did a great job. I think yeah, this I was, is a really good episode for him. Yeah. I was gonna compliment him on his acting skills every time his parents died. <laughs> yep. He, he showed a lot of empathy and shock and sadness. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's exactly like his face really conveyed exactly what what a person would be feeling. Well, I think more so the second time when they start realizing this is a simulation that keeps going and going is exactly what a person would feel. It's like sheer terror that you're stuck in the most traumatic event of your life happening over and over again, like and the despair at having to watch your parents die. Like it was really spot on. How old was he at the time? I think it was like young. I mean, the way he was talking and saying, you have to come and help me because I hurt myself. That's like seven years old kind of thing. That was my case too. Yeah. I wonder if he's experiencing it as an adult Daniel or if he's actually experiencing it as a seven-year-old Daniel. Like emotionally? Yeah, emotionally. I think his parents are experiencing it 
like he is Danny, the seven-year-old. And I think he is coming at it as adult Daniel. Okay. I mean, I think just like you were saying, the second time he has enough time to process. I think the first time it's just utter shock that he's there and he sees this again. But I think he's he's bringing more than what a seven-year-old would bring. Yeah, but but it's probably recalling the feelings he had at the time of just Mm -hmm. like shock and and fear and all that. Mm -hmm. So we're back in Germany and we're trying the mission once more. O'Neill believes that nothing will change, but Tilk pressures him to continue to try different variations to save his friends. He says that um, if you do nothing, nothing will change. Again, snipers killed gas deployed and all of a sudden O'Neill sees the people from the chamber the residents standing around which seems frightening to me people <laughs> in black clad robes with black yeah veils. very ghoulish yeah yeah it was creepy last time all the bad guys were hiding behind the hedge so this time O'Neill grabs John, pulls him behind the stone-filled cart before he can be shot and shoots the shit out of that hedge. Problem is, all the bad guys are on the roof and they kill John again. Yeah, O'Neill cannot win this game. Not when the bad guys have cute jaunty hat, plaid hats. Tilk murders every single one of them. <laughs> and so O'Neill says, let's fall back. Uh, we get a shot of the, the residents looking on and discussing what just happened. Very, very creepy. And then we have O'Neill and Tilk again behind that stone wall. And we see the truck pull up again and there's John and Kowalski. But this time the residents come from behind the truck and we meet a guy wearing green and a weird hat and it turns out he's the keeper. So I have a question about the black clad people. Were they just not observing during the first cycle? Because we didn't see them during the first one. And then now we can see them. Maybe he was, maybe the keeper was like trying out the scenario first. Okay. All right. That makes and sense. the keeper is who? Who is he, Sam? He is Dwight Schultz, who also plays Barkley yes. or Broccoli, depending on how you pronounce it, on Star Trek The Next Generation and Voyager in a couple episodes. There's a guy on Star Trek named Broccoli. Barkley. His name is Barkley. But they make fun of him yeah. on Star Trek with the name Broccoli. He did look familiar. I didn't know it was Star Trek. I think he's also on the A team. I saw that. So, he looks ridiculous, might I add. <laughs> Does look this, ridiculous. This shimmering robe and the hat too. And his accent, uh, what kind of accent is this? It's the planet people's accent. People. I mean, they, this is also the, I mean, we, I've sort of gotten past the language thing because we're now in season two, you just have to have to go with it. But when they do accents, it makes it worse because like, like on Star Trek, it's like, if it's the universal translator, then what we're hearing is just the interpretation that your mind is hearing, right? And let's say that there's some Gould implantation that does that. But when you have an accent, it implies somebody is trying to speak your language and can't quite do it. And so that sort of shatters that whole reasoning. 
did you feel that the accent was his request? Like, how can I make this as goofy as possible? How can I make this as over the top as possible? It just doesn't seem like a director's notes. Like, be crazier, throw in an accent. It could have been his approach to the character. It could have been. Kind of reminds me of like Marina Sirtis's, is it Sirtis or Sirtis? Marina Sirtis's accent in TNG. I think she, and I think it actually works in her, in her character, but she made up that accent. I mean, she's British in real life, but that's not a British accent. She made up this accent that was supposed to be some futuristic conglomeration of accents. So the keeper says it's actually O'Neill's wish to do the operation again and to have it go differently. This is something that he's been thinking about. And the keeper says that O'Neill's going to keep doing this mission and do different variations to try to save his friends. O'Neill flatly refuses and says, I won't do it again. The rest of the team go on the mission. And of course, they hear all the gunfire and probably John and the other guy are murdered again. Sucks. (laughs) Yeah, this doesn't seem very exciting for these black clad people. I mean, you don't see them interacting with each other or, I don't know, saying, hey, what's going to happen next time? I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like they're having a good time. They did. Yeah. The, when we saw them for the roof one, when they panned over and you can see two of them deep in conversation and looking on. Oh, yeah. okay. So two of them liked it. Great. Yeah. But this, it feels like kind of like a video game, right? A video game is interesting for the person playing because it's like a challenge. Like, okay, how do I get, how do I win this mission? How do I make sure everyone doesn't die? It's not that much fun to watch someone play a video game. Although I say that, and then I think there actually are like YouTube streams with millions of people where people watch people play video games. So that's probably not true. I think it's quite boring to watch someone play a video game. No, there's like whole fandoms of players and they just watch somebody else play video games. So why aren't the black clad people then um, standing in for O'Neill? in this mission that would make more sense like it's new content for them to play not just to watch i mean they get like a thousand more years to work this shit out so maybe they're just starting out they'll get to that in like 200 years or maybe it's just like watching tv kind of is it kind of like watching tv so you can't play it but you can watch it but the same episode over and over and over again people watch scooby-doo Scooby-Doo specifically? I know. I'm just thinking like every episode of Scooby-Doo, they rip the person's mask off and it's, you know, the landlord or whatever. So, and- Very formulaic. Yeah. Kids watch that just a million times. Frozen? How many kids watch Frozen? Oh my God. Yeah. I have seen Frozen, I'm going to say 300 times. Wow. It's too scary for my kids. Really? Love it. Love it. Repetition. You like repetition. People like, like Law and Order. You can't, that show has been on for like a hundred years. It's the same story. There's somebody murdered or raped or whatever, and we're going to solve it every single time. So then we are back in the museum and Carter is going to figure this out. And almost instantaneously, she 
gets rid of the idea of time travel, which probably O'Neill is still thinking is happening. <laughs> and so Carter is talking about there, it seems that they're in some kind of virtual reality, some kind of advanced recreation of memories. And this is the first time that we see the residents watching them. And Daniel probably wants to tell Carter to shove it. <laughs> Because he's, what, like watched his parents die three times now or two times? Yeah. I did think this was a good bonding moment for them. Like, I think she gets some insight into him. Mm -hmm. So Daniel, the, the whole scenario starts again. And Daniel tells his parents to move from underneath the slab. His dad says, Danny, go outside. That's when Daniel makes up a fib about breaking his leg and his mom so quickly dismisses it she's like no you're standing get out that makes okay. sense to me this is makes total sense to me as a yeah. parent you're like trying to get something done your kid comes in crying and you're like you're fine yeah i see no you're, blood no bones bleeding. are showing go away <laughs> very much relate to that although i would not stand under a giant slab of stone no don't relate to that part because the giant slab falls right then <laughs> and they die and of course we see the residents watching this Daniel then realizes that this is something that he's wanted to change his entire life and that's when we see the keeper suddenly materialize from this blonde pushy lady who's been in the museum yeah they I think they use some kind of CGI for this effect it was like a pew, 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 and then suddenly it's 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 a uh, the game the groundskeeper I liked it. it, it, it Give it a little something extra. Yeah, because it's like he was there the entire time, right? I, yeah, I know. But we're, we just like we just saw Daniel's parents die twice. And now, hey, let's do some hijinks with some twirly blondes. It's just too much. But I think it fits in with his character as being kind of happy about other other people's traumatic events and grief and just his over the topness. Of course he wants to watch somebody be horrified at the death of their parents. But that that would have made him like creepy. And I didn't get creepy from him. I just got sort of maniacal. Yeah, he's I, a little hard to figure out. Yeah. I just I, I I don't think Dwight Schultz played this character well in this particular episode it's just his character the way he played it just didn't fit with the rest of the episode I mean on the one hand you do it's it's pretty like sociopathic to do this to people right and I I mean I get you're stuck in a simulation for a thousand years maybe you forget that this is real people's lives but it, it seems like a normal person would be like wow I'm torturing these people I should stop doing that and it just didn't fit with like this kind of annoying I love plants and I don't want you to ruin my garden aspect like it it, it was like at, at, like one of the things that really I dislike about this episode is you have this very very heavy subject and such a ridiculous way of approaching it and it just it was too much disconnect yeah and, and there was opportunity for an actor to play this as a psychopath or maybe maybe it was the director's fault I don't know the writers, I mean, if you write into it at the end, like this ridiculous thing about how they're ruining his plants. I mean, how do you play a psychopath that cares that much about flowers? Yeah. I mean, I think the character just wasn't written well or wasn't well thought out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I was thinking about him being a psychopath also, but it just doesn't fit. You know, he felt more like a narcissist. Like he is somebody who he has a goal in mind and it's for his own to keep the residents in their chamber so he can continue to go out and do whatever he wants to do. Very controlling, but he seems like at some point he eventually will understand what he's doing to these people. Doesn't seem like it's a concept that he won't grasp. It might take him a thousand years, but I do think that he's not doing this specifically to hurt somebody. So again, the scenario starts over for Daniel. And this time he goes to his parents and he tries to drag them away um, from underneath the slab. And they, they get a worker to instead drag him away. And of course the slab falls on them and they, they die again. And this is when Daniel tells the keeper that he wants to stop and he doesn't want to play anymore. These are not good parents. This is not good parenting. I mean, I get sometimes you're busy and you're out trying to work and your kid keeps bothering you, but this is it's just terrible. Do you think if he said, if he pulled on them and said, you're going to die under this slab, do you think then they might be like, I'll take four steps out from under this slab? Probably not. No, I think so. I think the only way he could have avoided them dying from the slab was for Daniel to kill them themselves. Because it's just, there was no way he was going to drag these people out from under the, the slab. And like, to your point of like, what happens, like, let's say they do figure out a way, both of these scenarios to win. All that's going to do is create all this massive grief that you didn't do that, that that's not real, that they really didn't survive, right? It seems like a horrible scenario any way you cut it. Yeah, and then you, you, I guess you've essentially won the game. So there's no more game to watch. And then the black clad people don't have anything to watch. So I don't think they, they are intended to win this game. And then they go to the next scenario of when yeah. should have, could have stopped his kid from killing himself. Like, yeah. I mean, this endless, these people I have guess. a lot of traumatic incidents in their past. Yeah. So Daniel's protesting to the keeper and he turns around and his parents die again. Because Daniel is so obstinate about not wanting to play this game again, the keeper gives up, uses his arm machine to bring Tilk and O'Neill back from Germany in some weird little twisty tube. Yeah, it looks like one of those candy things that you, like a funnel you get in a fair. Or like a mini tornado, like a stylized tornado, because once we see it on the, like it's on the doors and stuff, the portal. Mm -hmm. And it looks like stylized. Mm -hmm. Like a logo. Yeah. This is where the keeper asks all of them why they refuse the opportunities that he's giving them to do these scenarios over and over again. He offers them the ability to go anywhere that they can imagine and anywhere from their past that they remember. And O'Neill says, I want to go free. This is where the keeper starts telling the backstory of why he's doing this. And we find out that the residents have been hooked up to these chambers for about a thousand years. And what he's doing to O'Neill and Daniel is just trying to break up the monotony. And we get lots of conversations about this, the residents being the computers and the team being the software. I didn't think that this analogy worked. 
So are they now the resident? Are they now added to the residents? It felt like no. Remember Daniel says something about it's like being in a room, locked in a room for years and years with only five DVDs. I think Daniel said that. Mm-hmm. So I think they are the DVDs. Yeah, I think I think they are the software. I mean, their brain, their experiences are the software, right? They're the new DVDs that they get to watch. Do you have to explain what a DVD is for our younger listeners? <laughs> no, <laughs> we have younger listeners. So, <laughs> judging by the average age at the convention we went to, I'm going to say no. Is this the first time we get so the explanation for why Sam and Teal'c? were sort of, I guess, tagalongs to the other people's simulation is because their brains don't output because of the, the Gould. I think this is the first indication we get that Sam is like sort of permanently changed by her experience with Jolinar, right? Right, yeah. She doesn't seem freaked out. She seems like, oh, okay. She looks a little freaked out to me. I mean, in this case, it helped, right? She didn't have to relive whatever trauma she would have to relive, but... Thing to know that your brain is now permanently different would be cause for concern. So the keeper, the keeper says that this is entertainment for his residents because these residents are locked in their chambers. They can't leave because they've made their world uninhabitable. They poisoned it after a chemical disaster over a thousand and twenty-two years ago. And this is when Carter speaks up and says, "Your world is regenerating." it's fine. You can go back out. And he's like, no, no, no. I've been monitoring it. It's still uninhabitable and the residents cannot go out there. This is when uh, the keeper discloses that he made this environment. This is his creation for the residents. And O'Neill turns to the residents and says, he's lying to you. He's trying to control you. And the keeper promptly copper tornadoes them away. So do these residents live forever? Is this machine make you never, ever die? Or does this just extend your life sort of indefinitely? But like they get maybe another thousand years. Maybe they just don't age, period. But I, I just don't see how that's possible. And, and then once they get out, which we know they eventually do, do they now just live a normal life? Like hasn't, haven't they essentially killed them because they're no longer being sustained by these thousand year long life machines? And how big is this world? Is the groundskeeper just taking care of this entire world on his, what, his breaks? And it's just like the eight of them. And now <laughs> get to live on this planet with nobody else. <laughs> There's more than eight. There's a bunch. There's about 20, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. Not, not a hell of a lot. Like imagine talking to the same 20 people for the rest of your life. Definitely not enough to start a community. I'd have to find some more people. I would hope they're not going to like be breeding. Like they should just li- live and live out their lives. It could be like they also didn't minutes. look that young. They don't look that young. But they could just drop dead as soon as SG-1 leaves <laughs> because they don't have machines anymore. Right. So we're back in the dome and the team is released from their chambers. And we have the brilliant Carter say, that was a little too easy. So we know something's up. We're back at the base. Dr. Frazier is checking them out. She talks about how they had puncture wounds from the tubes that were in them, but she says they're fine. We're in the boardroom and Daniel wants to go back and release the residents, 
Dr. Frazier says you should probably leave them because this might be removing them from life support and they could possibly die. Hammond says his first weird thing where he's like, you should go back and get more info because there might be technology that we need. Doesn't seem like something Hammond would want them to do again. And O'Neill says, are you cracked? Do you think that he already knows that this is Bobo Hammond? Or do you think that he's just throwing this out there early and being absolutely insubordinate? I think he knows. I think he knows as soon as they sit down that now this is not this is not Hammond. Yeah, I think as soon as Hammond told them that they should probably go back for more intel. So he knew something was up. Yeah. And Carter talks about how maybe next time they're not going to be able to escape. They might die. Hammond, again, is pushing way too hard and says, go ahead and go for a week. (laughs) If you don't return, (laughs) then we'll send another team, which Hammond has never said. He's usually like, I give you 45 minutes and we're going in. Yeah. And then he's mentioning all the scenarios that they could experience during this week, including bringing up O'Neill's son, which just seemed so cruel. That's, I mean, I already had my suspicions, but when he said that, I was like, yeah, no, this is fake. This is a simulation. So then O'Neill goes over to Hammond and starts pulling on his ears, looking for a mask and then slaps Hammond in the head. Do you, do you think that was RDA ad-libbing? Absolutely. <laughs> I bet it wasn't even in the script. It was probably written like O'Neill inspects Hammond's head. <laughs> yeah, that felt very improv to me. And I didn't, I didn't, they cut away. You hear the slap but you don't see Hammond's face because I bet you he was laughing so hard. Yeah. Just like the padding on his bald head. Yeah, I bet he broke. Yeah. And then Hammond, of course, is very angry and orders everybody arrested. And they're in the brig. And then we see it's actually Kowalski guarding them. And he encourages them to just go with it. Go with the different variations. And of course, O'Neill and Tilk beat the shit out of the guards and they escape. Yeah, I had a question about this. Was this the groundskeeper in Kowalski's, I guess, body? Because it didn't seem like it was the groundskeeper. It seemed like it was something else. Was it another resident that was trying to get more information? That's what it felt like. Hmm. Because he kept saying that he wasn't the keeper. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that residents were inhabiting like John during the, some of the, the cycles then? Could have been. And maybe yeah. that's how they got their entertainment is they yeah. get to play some of the characters. Who gets to play the dead parents? <laughs> maybe they switch them because there's so many of them. You can just rotate in and out of Daniel's dad. Everybody gets hit with the slab. This <laughs> is that fun. You get a slab and you get a slab and you get a slab. Everybody gets a slab. So they rush out into the hallway and there are the residents. 
and they want to know about what's going on outside. And O'Neill offers to show them what's outside because the keeper is in fact lying to them. Yeah, I, I was a little unclear about O'Neill's plan. He was going to take them to the Stargate inside this uh, simulation and then go back to the, their world inside the simulation. Yeah. Yeah. So because he remembered it, they Got would it. see what they remembered. Although if you can also be what you can imagine, couldn't he just imagine it? Yeah. I don't know how that's proof. He could have been just like imagining a nice world. But, but I could see O'Neill's, I could see um, O'Neill's plan, even though it might not work out the way he wanted it to. And so the resident, did the resident show him how to get out or did he just stumble upon that way? Or did the gamekeeper show it to him because he was, they were starting to fuck up his simulation? Yeah, I think the, gra- the, the game, is it groundskeeper or gamekeeper? Gamekeeper is the name of the episode, but I think he's both. Okay, no, I call him groundskeeper. He, inter- he uh, introduced himself at the beginning as the keeper. Okay, so let's just call the keeper. Uh, yeah, I think the keeper ran off towards one of those doors with the tornado on it, and then they followed him. And that led to the portal, where yeah. that led to the way where they see, he, they see themselves in the chairs and that makes them escape. Yeah. And apparently all these, these doors with the tornadoes on them were all over the place and you could go through them and escape the simulation, but no one knew about it. But the residents didn't know, because my, my impression was the residents were in there voluntarily because they thought that their world was uninhabitable and they only wanted to leave once they realized that their world was habitable. Yeah. So they weren't being forcibly kept in there. They were being lied to, but they weren't being forced to stay. Right. Fraud by trick. Fraud by trick. False imprisonment by trick? Is that what you said? False imprisonment by... There's something by trick. There's rape by by fraud. There's two circumstances. I remember there's two circumstances in which you can get prosecuted for rape by fraud. One is pretending to be someone's partner. Like in Revenge of the Nerds? I never saw Revenge of the Nerds. But if you pretend to be someone's partner and say, oh, I'm your husband and they have sex with you thinking you're their partner, that's rape. And then I think the other is medical. If you make someone think that it's a medical procedure. I think those are the two. The two. What if you have um, sex with a prostitute and don't pay her? I don't think that's rape. No? Okay. Because I don't think you can enforce an illegal contract. Yeah, there you go. But it is, what if it's at the Bunny Ranch? Then it would be... Oh, in Nevada? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but if for breach of contract, I don't think it's rape. It's breach of contract. But you're, you're handing over your consent due to this misrepresentation though that you're going to be paid yeah I, I think it gets real slippery like what if you like pick up somebody and say you're a doctor because you know they like doctors or they like men with money and it turns out you're a you know a cashier is that rape or is that just lying to somebody to get them into bed i mean it's it's a shitty thing to do but i don't think it's rape you mean dating because that's right, how yeah, dating yeah. Seems- or you're like yeah. you know like there's all kinds of ways you present yourself as different than who you are to get laid or to or to go on dates well there was um i know that of this sex offender i won't tell you he was this guy who raped mostly like pregnant women who he said this was a treatment for them and he went he's in prison right now yeah i think that's that's the rape by medical procedure or like you go to the dentist and they put you under and you (laughs) up and you don't have your panties on yeah that's actual rape i think it's <laughs> rape by rape <laughs> the team and the residents go to the gate room 
and Hammond shuts down the gate and they chase after him, which was interesting because I've never seen Hammond run. He's pretty quick. And the team figures out that this is actually the keeper, of course, and chases them to the chambers and they actually see themselves um, lying in their chambers. Pods. I think, I think they're like pods. They're released. And that's when they see the keeper running through the portal and they catch him outside in the garden. The keeper says that he just wanted to keep the residents inside because he didn't want them to ruin the planet like they did the first time. Which is a robot. He does kind of move robot-like. Robot. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the answer of why he he can live outside of the machines and not die is that he's not he's AI or something. Mm-hmm. I thought it was strange that he wanted to keep them in this simulation, these scenarios that have so many different variations and have the team go through all of this stuff over and over and over again. But he wouldn't even let the residents have one one chance. Well, maybe he thought it was safer in the simulated world than in the actual world. It sounded like he just didn't want anyone trampling his flowers. <laughs> it was, I mean, at first when he was like, my first thought is like, he's only, he only exists in the simulated world, right? He's some kind of artificial intelligence gamekeeper. And if people leave, then he dies, right? Or they, or he's alone in there, but no, he's an actual being outside. And so that whole explanation made less sense to me. You're like, you just don't want people touching your fucking flowers. That's it. That's why you tortured all these people. It just didn't feel like the payoff was so ridiculous. It didn't feel in any way believable. Mm-hmm. This is when the residents start leaving the dome and the team dials home, says, we're going to send you some provisions when we get back. And O'Neill and Daniel are like, is this still the simulation? And this is when we see the keeper yelling at the residents to stop picking the flowers and ruining his garden and losing his fucking cool. And so O'Neill's like, no, this is real. I don't know that I'd be that sure that this is real. I know. So a couple things. One is they make all these promises. Oh, we're going to send you provision. Once they fuck up their society, they find, they come onto a world, they find stuff the way it is. They fuck it all up. Right. So that people's lives are now totally different. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it just fucks it up. And they always say, we're going to send you stuff. Do they actually do that? Are they sent like to the, you know, like the first commandment planet where they killed their leader to the people that they made the, the, the baby rapists who they made live a long time. Are they sending them stuff? Like, are they actually following through with this or are they just fucking these people's society up and then leaving? They do mention uh, going back to Kinthea's planet <clears throat> at some yeah. point. Not in this episode, but another episode. So I think they do follow through. Not necessarily SG-1, but another team goes back. I bet one, they have teams that just do provisions. And also remember there was that planet where they actually s- set up a outpost and the team just lived there? A couple? No, there's like two planets that did that. So then why, then is that justifiable when you have like homeless people in the United States that you can't house? You're housing people in these random planets, but not housing your own population so we should house them in another world (laughs) or just make give them houses in where they live yeah yeah we could just send them to the beta site (laughs) i I am not advocating for like shipping homeless people to other planets at all i'm saying if you could send provisions to like 
make people's lives better when you fuck up their lives why can't you like house the people in colorado in buildings in colorado seems like a disconnect oh also i think they should be way more upset about what just happened to them like really like they just went through hor horribly like a basically psychological torture is what they went through and i don't think they like the keeper but they don't seem all that like upset that he did this to them yeah i, I mean think about it daniel might at one point be have suffered from T PTSD from his parents dying and to have it happen again right in front of you. I mean, that's horrible. I mean, think of uh, Vietnam vets suddenly having Vietnam War happen in front of them. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what happened to O'Neill. I mean, he, he like these are, they both have PTSD from these circumstances. I would have find it hard to believe that they don't. You know, O'Neill was in combat. You're now putting him back in combat. It's like the worst thing you can do for the treatment of PTSD is make somebody relive it and feel like it's real and they can't escape it. So it would have severe psychological uh, consequences. So the garden exteriors were filmed in Vancouver, just like you guys thought, in Queen Elizabeth Park, which is very poignant that we would watch this episode after her funeral. In one of her old colonies. There's still a colony. There's still they're a colony. Right She's still on their money. I wonder if they're going to change the money to Charles. Ugh. I think I think you have to. So at the end of every episode, we rate the episode how many chevrons we think that it deserves. Sam, what is your chevron rating on this episode? Three, maybe two. No, three. Two, three. Three, because I, I do appreciate some of the backstory behind Daniel, even though I think they just made it up for this episode. Um, I kind of wish that they had gone into the backstory of Sam instead. I think that would be a little more interesting. Um, and I don't, I, I, I don't think Dwight Schultz was the best casting choice, even though I, I like him as an actor and I like seeing Star Trek characters in Stargate. I just think they could have got, they should have gone with someone else. What about you, Rose? I'm gonna give it a two. I actually want to give it less, but I'm thinking of other episodes that are worse than this one. I need room to give it a lower rating. So I'm going to give it a two. Um, I really dislike this episode. I mean, first of all, there are a few sci-fi tropes that I just hate. Like, I just hate them whenever I see them. And one of them is people getting trapped in a virtual reality simulations. I just hate it as a baseline. So you're starting off with a bad topic. The other one I also hate is clones, which we've already dealt with. And bugs killer bugs <laughs> so we will be dealing with so those three things suck so this is already not something i like i think i, I hate the traumatic element of it um i don't think they did it justice it's like a really uncomfortable premise and i it just none of it felt believable like if you're gonna go to such a dark place you should really do it in a dark way and make it feel deep and it just felt like not that it felt ridiculous and unenjoyable. I agree with you 100% Rose. I think that you made extremely valid points, but I'm still <laughs> going to give it an eight <laughs> because of the wig. That was like, maybe I'll make like a, uh, like a loop, a time loop of just that, the beanie being pulled off and his hair being there because that just filled my day with joy. So eight I'm glad someone enjoyed this episode. Usually we're the ones that are like, it's great. And you're like, two. <laughs> so. 
everything else pales in comparison to that scene. So if this was filmed again now, what kind of changes do you think that the writers and the director would make and the actors? Oh, it would have been much deeper. Yeah. Dwight Schultz wouldn't be there. It would be, I don't know, like the guy who played Hannibal Lecter in the TV series, something like that. Yeah, I think it would have been really dark and deep and totally different episode with a different feel to it. I think they also would have probably given O'Neill the death of his son as the memory. Maybe, although they do revisit that so many times, they may have wanted to do a different storyline. Yeah. And I'm sure he has all kinds of shit in there. <laughs> his head. That's true. To choose from. Do you think that it wasn't used as the principal uh, scenario? Because in Cold Lazarus, he kind of came to an understanding with the fake son. You know, he kind of got some closure, but the East Germany one is the one that he didn't get any closure on. I also think it was, it would, I mean, maybe had this episode been darker, like we think it would be, um, it would be different, but I think it would have been too cruel to go there. I mean, even with Daniel, it felt very borderline that that's, you know, um, but I think the death of a child is just too awful to, to make somebody relive. I don't know. I think it would have been, it would have happened in Game of Thrones. So why not here? But you would have had to make a different episode, right? You it would have had to be like a horribly dark, depressing episode. Like, I think they were trying to keep it light in a certain way and having that be the memory would have been too much. It didn't, it didn't feel light to me. Yeah, <laughs> the parents dying. That's kind of a dark <laughs> issue. Yeah, maybe if it was made today, that would be the change they'd make and cons consistent with the whole episode just being much darker. Yeah, there wouldn't be these these light, fun, comical elements in this deep, deep episode. So thank you for joining us for my favorite episode. <laughs> and we will see you next week with season two, episode five, Need. Bye. 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 Gaffaw, gaffaw for me. <laughs> like us and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Even if you don't like us, you can still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole. Also visit us on our website, probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.